Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey listeners, Johanna Wagstaff here. If you like 2050 Degrees of Change, you should check out The Big One, Your Survival Guide from KPCC in California. Host Jacob Margulis walks you through what a 7.8 magnitude earthquake would be like in Los Angeles. The show has this incredible fiction narrative mixed in with interviews with seismologists, emergency responders, earthquake survivors, and economists. Every episode ends with practical tips for all of us who live in earthquake zones. Subscribe to The Big One, your survival guide, on Apple and Google Podcasts or wherever you get 2050 Degrees of Change. Good morning, Ariadne. It's time to wake up. It is November 4th, 2050. The temperature in Vancouver is 19 degrees. There is a rainfall warning in effect. A Category 5 hurricane made landfall in Halifax this morning. The province has declared a state of emergency. The Red Cross will be mobilizing at your school this morning. For much of the story we've told you so far, life is pretty good for Ariadne. Up until now, she's been happy. She's still well-fed. There may be tighter water restrictions, but she still has fresh water. She can still ride her bike outside and play soccer, even though there are more frequent air quality warnings. Up until the middle of this century, we can be reasonably hopeful that life in BC will be quite different, but recognizable. At least to some degree, Vancouver has adapted to the change. But the reason we haven't seen seismic shifts in the way we live isn't just because of our politics, policies, or personal choices. Part of it is just because of our geographic location. The effects of a changing climate in BC will mean things will be different. It will even be difficult. But unlike much of the rest of the world, many of us won't be hit in a way that forces us to make life or death choices. This is 2050, Degrees of Change. I'm meteorologist Johanna Wagstaff, and in this episode, we're tracking the human consequences of climate change. In 2050, climate change has led to humanitarian disasters around the world. A major cyclone, coupled with rising sea levels, breached Shanghai's seawall and caused massive flooding. Two million people died in the aftermath. Seven million more were displaced. It will take years to fully rebuild. A three-year drought in northern Brazil has withered crops, exacerbating food shortages for those most in need. Changing weather patterns have disrupted the monsoon cycle, causing longer droughts and more severe flooding, which has put millions at risk across Cambodia and Vietnam. In 2045, Miami was devastated by a Category 4 hurricane. Thousands lost their lives, hundreds of thousands of homes were destroyed, and up to a million people were displaced. 
A heat wave in 2040 killed 15,000 people in Dubai alone after temperatures soared to 55 degrees for more than a week. Massive annual flooding magnified by sea level rise in Senegal has caused hundreds of thousands of people to head to Dakar. But the capital is struggling with years of severe flood damage in its own right. The Pacific Island nation of the Marshall Islands has been abandoned. The Philippines have been hit with storm after catastrophic storm. The Great Barrier Reef is almost entirely bleached out. The Arctic has had summers without any sea ice almost every year since 2035. Europe has closed its borders to hundreds of thousands of climate refugees. Water shortages hinder the Mediterranean's agricultural sector. Political tensions are running high. Climate change has caused severe storm damage, destroyed homes and coastlines, spread disease, famine, caused economic and political unrest, even armed conflict around the world, displacing millions. This is what the rest of the world is facing in just three decades. And if this sounds far-fetched, international organizations like the UN, the WHO, the World Bank, they're projecting such calamities. Gwyn Dyer is an author and journalist. He's the author of the book Climate Wars, which forecasts the human consequences of a warming world. For most of his career, he's written about war and conflict, but he says climate change is what scares him the most. Well, migration is going to be the issue. Will we be getting migration out of the states? Probably yes. Um, The southern states, um, both the southwest and the southeast, Um, are really in the subtropics, you know. And the subtropics are going to get hammered by this stuff. It gets hotter and drier in the southwest. It gets hotter and the storms get bigger in the southeast and probably drought in the southeast as well as the southwest. By 2050, um, the Americans are losing whole areas to either flooding, like southern Florida, Little rise in sea level sees off Miami. There's a few million people having to move. Um, and the, the crops are withering, you know, in the heat. And you are beginning to see Americans moving north in very large numbers. Mostly people with money, frankly, who can afford they're – not, they're not refugees. They just come in and buy stuff up. The broader picture – going to Europe, going to Asia, Africa, Latin America, is very grim, and it's grimmer the closer you get to the equator. And again, the key issue is food. The droughts are hitting food production in the subtropics. Well, you know, between the tropics and the subtropics, you've got 70% of the global population, and they are going to be on the move. Not all of them, obviously, but a lot of them, because there simply isn't enough food and people will not stay, sit there and watch their children starve. They will move no matter how ma- difficult you make it. So the borders will have slammed shut to keep deluges of refugees from the tropics and the subtropics from coming in to the temperate zone countries that still at least are growing enough to feed themselves because they can't feed the world. And if the world comes inside, you know, then there's not enough to go around for anybody. So borders are slamming shut, and the dirty little secret about borders is 
If you want to shut a border, you can. All you have to be willing to do is kill people. Gwynne does not paint a hopeful picture of the near future. By mid-century in Canada, we've worked hard to cut our carbon emissions in half. But even then, it's not enough to keep our lives from changing. And this is in a country with abundant fresh water, lots of room, and a rich economy. We've escaped the worst of the droughts and heat waves that have killed so many around the world. While we've experienced horrible floods, terrible forest fires, we haven't had the kind of loss of human life or forced relocation that other regions have had. Compared to the rest of the world, BC is a relative climate oasis. Well, you think about Canada and you think about British Columbia, where would you like to go? <laughs> you, know? you remember Stephen Shepard from UBC? Stephen wrote the book Visualizing Climate Change and created the video game Future Delta, a teaching tool for imagining what Delta will look like in different climate scenarios. We've got space, we've got water, we've got resources, we've got energy, we've got, you know, all the things, democracy. Um, seems pretty attractive to me. Uh, we did a study a few years back with Delta, um, one of our sort of local visioning uh, studies on climate change. And one of the things that we explored was where might uh, refugees go, particularly if they come in in large numbers or there are major events, like major flooding events elsewhere. I mean, we have strong connections with places like India and Pakistan and many, many parts of the world. So they may well, you know, wish to come here. And if the government uh, allows them to come in, then uh, where would they go? And so we explored the possibility of large sort of unplanned or temporary settlements often in sort of more marginal areas that are, may in themselves be uh, flood-prone and this kind of thing. So where would those communities go and what would, our, what would our neighborhoods look like? So I think that's an important question for anybody who's thinking about how do we address climate change, how do we mitigate it, is how many of these kind of refugee settlements do you want? Uh, it's like the same question, how, how much sea level rise do you want? How much food prices, how high do you want them to go? Because the longer we wait to mitigate these things, you know, locally and globally, then, uh, you know, the worse it's going to get. By 2050, a steady river of people looking for a better, more stable environment have arrived in Canada. Metro Vancouver has seen its annual immigration rates more than double to 150,000 people arriving every year. Some will be climate refugees, fleeing cataclysmic disasters. Others will be economic migrants, seeking opportunities that climate change has destroyed elsewhere. But are we planning for it? But we will do something. We will do various things. And whether we do enough is an open question and one I am not tremendously optimistic about. But I can believe it could happen. I mean, one of the things that you can't calculate is... How much will the really nasty local stuff that starts to happen in the 20s and 30s of this century as the climate goes well above one degree higher average global temperature, how much will that motivate people to take this all more seriously? It's a political and a psychological question you cannot answer in advance. Um, they may discount it, close their eyes to it, don't want to think about it, but, um, you know, a rational severely rational human race, not one that we've ever had to deal with, um, could solve this problem very easily. We'd never even come close to two degrees. You know? I mean, all you need is people who actually put the long-term outcome 
as their take it as their primary goal, you know, avoid a disaster in a period past my likely lifetime. And it's very hard to get people to focus on that. You know, we talk a great deal about, you know, sacrificing for the next generation. It's nonsense. We don't. We don't at all. We load them down with debt and we leave them with all sorts of problems that we didn't bother to fix because it wasn't hurting yet. James Hansen has been telling people that it's already hurting for decades. In fact, he's known around the world as the father of climate change awareness. He goes by Jim. He wears a three-piece suit and an Indiana Jones hat. He's a Columbia University professor and climate scientist who ran NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies for more than three decades. Back in 1988, he made headlines when he testified in front of a United States Senate committee that global warming was real and that it was caused by human activity. His testimony made global warming part of the public conversation, and he hasn't stopped raising the alarm ever since. Well, I'm most concerned about those things that are irreversible. Uh, one of those is ice sheet disintegration and sea level rise. If ice sheets begin to disintegrate and reach a point where they're out of our control, out of young people's control, then we will get sea level rise of several meters. The last time the planet was a degree warmer than now, sea level reached heights of six to eight meters higher than today, which would mean all coastal cities become dysfunctional. The economic consequences of that and the fact that uh, hundreds of millions of people would become refugees would make the planet practically ungovernable. So that's what that's one irreversible effect that we have to avoid. The other thing is just the other species on the planet. We're, there's the potential for driving a significant fraction, a quarter to a half of the species to extinction, if we follow business as usual. When he says business as usual, he's talking about a scenario where collectively, globally, we don't cut back our carbon emissions. This is also the worst case scenario. Despite working on climate change for more than four decades and seeing how little things have changed, Jim's still optimistic. You may be discouraged by the fact that we've been arguing that we need action for, you know, a few decades now. However, the optimistic side of the story is that if we do begin to take actions by putting a simple uh, rising carbon fee, this could work quite rapidly. The economic studies show that if you had a $10 a ton tax that went up $10 a ton each year, by the end of 10 years it reduced emissions 30%. And it would increase the GNP, the gross national product, and increase the number of jobs. So there's really no reason not to do it except that the fossil fuel industry is so powerful in our capitals. But if young people would take the control of the situation, which sounds like a huge uh, assumption, but it could be done. You know, we still have democratic governments, even though special interests seem to control our capitals. Um, it's actually possible to affect the democratic system. And I'm hopeful that that will happen within the next several years. 
Jim Hansen is putting his hope in a global carbon tax, one that will become so expensive no country will be burning fossil fuels. And there are lots of people working on possible solutions. Think of Elon Musk, who's revolutionizing the way we think about energy. Or individual nations like tiny Costa Rica, hoping to reach its goal of being the first carbon-neutral country in the world in just a few short years. China, once vilified for its carbon emissions, is now becoming a global leader. Individual provinces, like Ontario, moving away from coal-fired power plants before any federal law told them to. In many ways, this is going to come down to innovation, political buy-in, and dollars and cents. Already, more money is being invested in renewables than ever before. Around the world, in 2015, more than twice as much money was spent on renewables than on coal and gas-fired power generation. There's a lot of good work being done out there. Some of the solutions are things we may not have even heard of yet. Technology may not be the cure, but with the rate technology is advancing, it will be part of the solution. But what can one person do? You've heard the stock response, trade in your car for a transit pass, make your home more energy efficient, buy secondhand, eat less meat. Yes, we're telling you to become a Vancouver hipster, but it's these kinds of small changes that eventually lead to larger shifts, sometimes in a few short years, other times over generations. For decades, one family has been trying to bridge that generational gap. So we asked two generations of Suzuki's to join us. This is the nature of things. David Suzuki has been a Canadian environmental icon for more than four decades. A scientist, educator, and of course, the longtime host of The Nature of Things, his daughter, Severn Cullis Suzuki, is an environmentalist in her own right. It's very, very discouraging. As an elder now, I know the history of it. And you have to remember, in 1988, that was the absolute peak. Brian Mulroney was re-elected. He appointed Lucien Bouchard as his minister. And this is, he was the hottest politician in government at that time. So I interviewed Bouchard three months later. I said, Mr. Bouchard, what do you think is the most important environmental issue? It was 1988. He said, global warming. So I thought, whoa, that's pretty good. I said, how serious is it? And his answer was, it threatens the survival of our species. We have to act. That's 1988. The urgency was there. The scientific community in the 88 called for a 20% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions in 15 years. That was it. And we didn't do it. You know, we didn't take it seriously. What do you think happened? Well, we went into a small recession. And uh, then the climate deniers began to be fed tens of millions of dollars to say it's junk science, this is a natural cycle, it's sunspots, and all of this other phony baloney stuff. And so uh, they succeeded in, in getting the public to think, oh yeah, well they haven't settled it yet, the science isn't in. Severin, you've also spent your whole life fighting for environmentalism, and, and you have two young children who will be adults in uh, the middle of the century. Are you optimistic about their future? Well, my kids, you know, are very privileged. So they're probably, you know, still going to be alive and active and um, engaged. And I think for them, you know, in the context of the globe, they have a pretty good chance of still having, um, you know, a pretty positive lifestyle. 
But I think for most of the world, by that time, we will be in major conflict. And climate will be the issue, it will be the backdrop for everybody's life. There won't be the luxury of this conversation of whether or not it's happening or what kind of emissions. We will be fully engaged in water crises, refugee crises, um, civil war, uh, the kinds of things that we're seeing right now, but we're not connecting to climate yet. I mean, my attitude really is, you know, shifting from kind of mourning the loss as we are entering fully into the sixth mass extinction and really engaged in, well, you know, we've got to be engaged in the conflict. We've got to do what we can. The unusual thing about right now is that it's globalized and that we have actually shifted the atmosphere for life on the planet. Uh, David, I feel like most of your sort of battles were getting people to even acknowledge climate change and making it part of their conversation. And Severin, sort of for, for our generation, it's making people act to, to stop catastrophic climate change. What will be the, the role of the next generation in this ongoing battle? I think we have to build the vision of what we need, what we want, and it's going to be about governance. It's going to be all about alternative economics. It's going to be about community energy sovereignty. Totally new structures for human organizing. It totally is coming to pass that everything is just slowly crumbling because it's so unstable, because the values underpinning it all are not human values. <laughs> The thing I worry about, you know, there was uh, the cartoon, The Roadrunner, and I guess it was a wily e. coyote that would chase the roadrunner, and he'd run over the cliff, right, and he's suspended there going, uh-oh, I think, and then poof, down he goes. And this is the big worry is overshoot, that by the time we say, oh my God, we, we need a gigantic program, we will have so eroded the basic biology of the planet that it'll be uh, beyond turning back. For the vast majority of environmentalists, they think if we get more energy efficient and transfer to green energy and buy electric cars, that we'll be able to live the way we're living now. We won't be able to do that. This is a fundamental signal that we're far beyond the capacity of the planet to absorb what we're doing. We've got to be living much more simply and much more locally. We have to approach this as a legacy opportunity that the living generations that I have to be on the side of the positive story. And that is the narrative that I'm giving my kids. You know, my son yesterday asked me, Mom, will there be Komodo dragons when I'm grown up? And I, you know, said, well, probably, but, you know, probably not. I, um, you know, I was, I was saying to Dad that maybe I should have said, Forget about charismatic megafauna. We have to worry about the keystone species, the eelgrass, the, you know, the salmon, these things that keep us all, all going. But you know, the top level predators that are endangered right now, um, you know, sorry, those are gone. I chose not to tell my seven-year-old that. But in the future, you know, the narrative I'm saying is, we're warriors. This is our time. This is the battle we're in right now. And we're on the side of we're on the side of sustainability. We're on the side of the future. This is what we're doing, son. This is our cause. And I think that having a cause isn't a bad thing to have in the 21st century. You know, we're very privileged to be able to to have a voice, to um, to have a choice on how we live our lives, and to be taking responsibility. Taking responsibility looks different for everyone. 
The difficulties we'll see by 2050 pale in comparison to what could happen by the end of the century if we do nothing. In the models, 2050 is, after all, a tipping point. It's after that all the scenarios show an increase in the cumulative effects of climate change. How steep, how severe those variations are, depends on what we do now. And there are lots of people who are dedicating their careers to this. We spoke with more than 40 people for this podcast. Scientists, farmers, policymakers, and ecologists. And all of them suggested even more people we should talk to. Because the effects of climate change are so broad that it will impact every aspect of our lives. We've painted you a picture of how our world might look in 2050. And we've used a carbon emission scenario that requires us to make rapid progress in cutting our emissions and finding ways to capture carbon from the atmosphere. But the stark truth of it is that even if we cut emissions by 50% of what they are in the present day, that's still not enough to keep global temperatures from warming two degrees by the end of the century. And after that, the consequences of climate change become much, much worse for all of us. It won't play out like a disaster movie, but it will transform the world we live in. The big picture can feel too big to take in, but there is still time to slow the worst impacts. For many people we spoke with, They say that's one of the best things you can do. Make it an issue you care about, including Simon Donner, the climatologist from UBC we met back in episode one. You know, the message I think everyone who hears this podcast or any story about climate change is to realize that you're part of the solution, right? That we're all part of this. The government can't do it alone. Companies can't do it alone. A bunch of environmentalists can't do this on their own. We're all part of the solution. And regardless of what you do for a living and what you do in your spare time, we, the world needs somebody with your expertise, right? It doesn't matter. You can be a lawyer. You could be a doctor. You could be a plumber. It really doesn't matter because we have to sort of remake the way we live a little bit. And so everybody has a way in which they can contribute to that. Probably the most effective one, to be completely frank, from a, just a strict numbers basis is to vote. Because if you think about the difference between what one direction election goes versus another could have on policies in the directions that, you know, the country, the province or the city takes to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, your vote could be the pivotal one that flips between the two. And we've actually done analysis of this and it shows it's probably the most effective thing you can do. In 2050, British Columbia will still be here. And maybe you still will be too. Or maybe your children or grandchildren will be. It's easy to feel like giving up in the face of the challenges ahead. After all, what can just one person do? But you need to decide if you're going to do the best you can to build a future that we all want to be part of. I'm Johanna Wagstaff at CBC Vancouver. 2050 Degrees of Change was produced by myself, Polly Leger, and Sherelle Tobin. Sound design by Lee Rosevere. Special thanks to Ariadne Weber-Madison for her portrayal of Ariadne in 2050 and our producer Polly as the voice of Ava. You can download this episode and all the others at cbc.ca slash podcasts or on iTunes. If you enjoyed this podcast, we would love it if you would rate it or leave us a review. Special thanks to Trevor Murdoch at the Pacific Climate Impacts Consortium, the Pacific Institute for Climate Solutions, and everyone we spoke with while researching this project. And thank you 
for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.